Welcome to the podcast of Lancaster Brethren in Christ Church, located in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. LBIC is a community being transformed by the love of Jesus, sharing this love with all people. We want this podcast to be an extension of our community and a connection with familiar voices. Together, we want to think about how to follow Jesus in our particular moment. So enjoy the podcast. We're grateful to have you join us as a part of the LBIC family. So if you look at, uh, if you look at this graphic, um, it kind of gives you the, the sense of the year in which we follow. And so I realize that for many of us, we are non-liturgical in nature. We're not a liturgical church by background or anything like that. But for several years now, we've been following the church calendar, which just gives us a different rhythm of, of life. And we've just finished up this or, uh, season called Ordinary Time, which focuses on us living the story. And so it's very much a focus on the church. But today is the first Sunday of a new year. And that new year begins with Advent. And it begins again with the story of God because all stories begin with God. Most of the time, I think in the church, and we'll talk about this today, we think that the story begins with us. And the framework through which we see the world and ourselves and even God most oftentimes begins with us and not with God. But this, this cyclical church calendar, uh, it, it's, it's not a rote thing. It's not a routine thing. It's something that it's a tool that helps us focus to living the story, to understanding the story, to knowing the story, to telling the story. And so we're entering into the story of Jesus again this first Sunday of Advent. I don't know about you, um, but uh, I, I, I've anticipated Advent this year. I don't know why. Uh, I shared with somebody this last week um, that I just feel... Um, Comforted in a way, uh, encouraged in a way, helped in a way uh, by having there be an intentional turn of the season and into a time where I can focus on my hopes and my longings and my expectancies. Uh, th those are some of the things that we're invited to pay attention to in this season of Advent. Like we're invited to, to participate in these things. So here's a, a few ways um, I think about Advent. Maybe they might be helpful to you. Um, but I think about it as a posture of leaning in close to make sure we hear every word. Like when you're in conversation with somebody, you lean in. There's an expectancy. Or we can think of it uh, in the sense of anticipation. Maybe for someone or something to show up or to happen. Or, I think this is probably what describes me, the yearning that we feel. The yearning that we feel. Maybe it's the yearning that we feel for someone's good or for the world's good, maybe even. But it's the yearning that we feel. And as wars continue to rage on in our world, I, I feel certainly a yearning for peace. So maybe you can identify with some of these experiences, and as I read this passage from Isaiah chapter 64 this morning, see if you can pick up on any of these themes. Isaiah 64 verses 1 through 9, this is what the prophet writes. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, God, and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you, 
as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. One of the folks from our interpretive community last week described this passage as a tug of war, uh, saying something to the effect of, we're not so sure that we want God, but we do want God, but we don't want God. And it's this back and forth, this tug of war. The passage begins with this praying for an earthquake. And a lot of times when, when you think about earthquakes and things, those are terrifying moments. But the prophet is praying for God to show up in the form of an earthquake because they want things shaken up a bit. So let's come back again to the idea of tug of war, the idea of we're not sure what we want, God, but we do want you, but we don't want you. And let's look at verses 4 and 5 again. Since ancient times no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? So here's a question that this passage poses and I think is a, a, an important question for us to consider. What is it that's going to make God move on their behalf? So God, show up, rend the heavens, come down, do something, shake things up, uh, upset the status quo, do something. What is going to make God do something? Can God be someone or some entity who is made to do something? Verse 4 seems to suggest that, that God acts on behalf of those who wait for him. So maybe that's going to make God do something. Verse 5 suggests that God helps those who gladly do right. But then most of the rest of the passage describes how people don't do things that are right. Um, so does this mean that God won't do anything because the people aren't good enough or can't stay good enough for long enough? Is that what this means? I want us to examine for a few minutes how we might think about what it takes for God to move on our behalf. Uh, Leah, this next graphic, please. All right. Emojis communicate so much. One of the most helpful inventions in modern day, I think. Um, this graphic uh, uh, describes maybe the mechanics of how Israel thought God worked, and I don't think how we think God works is, is very different from Israel. Um, because it's the same in the Old Testament. We see it in the Old Testament. Uh, if you want a great example of, of 
how people perceive God's works. Read John chapter 9, the, the story of the man born blind. This is something I think that we believe too. And it goes something like this. Uh, thumbs up emoji. If God is happy with us, then good things happen. We'll be blessed. In Israel's case, that means they will dwell in the land. Land was uh, just a very central piece of what it meant to, to be God's people. It was a central piece of their identity. And this is written in a time when they're in exile. In our case, we many times think of this uh, materially or as the absence of difficulty. Right? If God is pleased with us, then we are materially blessed or we're free from any sort of pain or suffering or difficulty. The cause of all this is seen to be our good behavior for which these good things are a reward. So if God is happy with us, it's because we've made God happy. On the other hand, though, if God is angry with us, then bad things happen. We're cursed. And this language comes up in the scripture with some regularity. We're cursed. The cause of these bad things is our bad behavior, for which these bad things that are happening to us are a punishment. And so sometimes we interpret illness or disease or trials as a result of God punishing us for doing something. I've heard a lot of people who, in times of suffering say, God, what did I do? What did I do to deserve this? What did they do to deserve this? What are we thinking about God, or what are we saying about God when we think this way? Leah, you can put the next slide up. Here's a few things that I would suggest, and there's probably more. But first of all, God's actions, what God does, is based upon reaction to human conduct. So if we're bad, then God is going to punish us. God's going to curse us. If we're good, God's going to bless us. Everything will be okay. What he does then is in proportionate response to what we do. Which, if you're nailing it, wonderful. And if you're not, I kept thinking of like proportionate response when it comes to war, right? Is that how God operates? I was bad this week, didn't do so good this week, in the depths this week, and God's really reaching down there to keep it on me. God's feelings towards us, when we think about it in this way, or his posture towards us, is dependent upon our action. Or we could say that God's feelings and actions towards humanity simply mirror Humanity's ability or inability to be faithful to God. Humanity is fickle, and so God is going to be fickle. Notice here that the story that Israel tells themselves, or the story that we tell ourselves when we have this narrative that runs through our head, is that the story begins with us and not with God. God's feelings and God's actions don't begin with God. They begin with us. It's, a, it's as if God doesn't have any character or disposition towards you or towards me from the beginning. God is just making up his mind how he's going to respond to us based upon how we do. 
And if that's the case, friends, you guys might not want to come back next week. You know, it's kind of, what's the point, right? In this way of thinking, God has no character that simply is. No character that simply is, or any way of being that simply is, no matter what we do. So how do we think about this differently? I want to tell you a story. I was reading randomly back through a journal this last week, and I came across a random story from this past year. And it goes something like this. It was a Sunday morning, and I think I was either at home early before I came in, or I was, I think I was in the office. And I was feeling crummy, because the night before, I made a bad decision. Ruby and Chloe and I turned on Netflix and uh, read the, the, the description of whatever, I don't even remember what movie it was, but it was one of those movies that I describe this way. You feel like you just want to take a mental shower afterwards, right? So you watch this thing, you're like, ugh, what did I just do with my life, right? And so because it's Sunday morning and I'm a very sensitive person, I'm like, I watched that and, and now I got to tell people about Jesus? What kind of a hypocrite am I? Now, don't extrapolate how horrible the movie was. I don't remember what it was, but I was watching it with my teenage daughter, so that gives you some sort of feeling as to what it might have been. So don't go way off the deep end is what I'm saying. So I, I was sitting in my office, and I remember, I feel so bad. And my intuition and my instinct was, like, to plead for mercy because God's really ticked at me. And then I realized that this feeling that I was getting was not from God. I wasn't feeling this way because God was angry with me. It wasn't because I was being punished for being lazy for not hitting the power button. What I was feeling in that moment, was a consequence of my actions. The result of making a stupid decision. God wasn't to blame. I was. If God wasn't uh, the one making me feel cruddy that morning, where, where was God? And in that moment, I, I recognized that, no, okay, this, this feeling is my stupid decision. Does God want me to feel this way? No. Where is God in this moment? He's probably here to show me mercy and grace and say, okay, buck up, Charlie. You know, it's, it's okay. You realize you made a bad decision. That's not the way I want you to live in, but I'm not mad at you. That's where God was. God was there to give me grace. God loved me before the stupid choice. God was either sad or just shaking you know, shaking the head, stupid choice, and old, you know, while I was doing it. But God was also ready to renew me as I turn from my bad decisions, recognize my consequences, and turn back to him. So let's go back to the passage, because this passage suggests that God is near to those who wait or to do what is right. And remember last week we say that the, the scripture has conversation with itself. And so in our interpretive community this week, we thought, okay, yeah, the people who do what is right um, pleases God. But then you hear Jesus saying to the Pharisees, you whitewashed tombs. And they were doing everything right. 
So what do you do with that? So that can't be right. And then we hear the prophet say, well, we continue to sin against your ways. The prophet's saying what the people feel. We sinned, you got angry. That's how I felt in my office that morning. I sinned or I came up short or whatever it was, and God, in order to put the screws to me, just wanted to make sure I knew that was stupid. So he made me feel bad. So the prophet's saying what the people feel in verses 5 and 6 and 7. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who's unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name. Notice all the language. No one calls. All of us have become. We all shrivel up. No one calls on your name or strives to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us. You've given us over to our sins. That last line, given us over to our sins, I think is an apt description of what's happening here. When the people say we sinned and then God, you got angry and you punished us. Is it in the Bible? Yes. Is it true? Yes. Is it true as a fact that God is punishing them? Hmm. I don't know. Or is it a representation of how they're feeling in that moment that is describing what they perceive of God, maybe. But have you ever thought about, you know, God, you got angry, and you punished us, or you're punishing me, or you're making this happen, when we're simply receiving the consequences of our decision, it's actually a deflection of our responsibility. I messed up. God, it's your fault that I'm experiencing all this now. Why are you doing this to me? I was like, I'm, I'm not doing anything to you. You did this, which is antithetical to my ways, and this happened. I didn't do anything. You've done this. And so sometimes we blame God. It's a deflection of responsibility that we need to take responsibility for. One of my mentors used to encourage us, don't super-spiritualize things. Don't don't blame the devil for what you need to take responsibility for. Or maybe don't blame God for what you need to take responsibility for. I think many times what is described as God's anger, which is felt like punishment or pain, is simply consequences to our actions. So if God isn't the angry red emoji up in the sky, where is God? What's God up to? To answer that, let's think about some cycles that are happening in this passage of Scripture. There's three different ones in the passage. The most obvious cycle is this cycle of obedience and disobedience. They don't always get it wrong. God's people don't always get it wrong. You probably don't always get it wrong. I don't always get it wrong, but I have an affinity for somewhat semi-regularly getting it wrong. And so do you, most likely. But this is clear from their story, and it's clear in our story. We don't always get it wrong, but remaining faithful is a struggle. And I get an amen. Like, it's a struggle to remain faithful. 
And so this is probably an oversimplification, but there seems to be a cycle to Israel's life and maybe to our life as well. Leah, if you want to put that up there. Here's, here's how I would illustrate it. Nope, not that one. Blue one. Blue one. Blue one. Next one. Forget you saw that one. There we go. So the cycle, the cycle always begins with God, right? Because nothing exists without God making it exist. And so through grace, God birthed everything that is right? and called it good. Um, and so it begins with God. God creates. God calls Abram. God delivers from Egypt. God gives, uh, gives them the promised land. Christ comes. God comes in the person of Christ. Christ will come again. These things, all of them happen. This story, this narrative happens. This redemption happens because of God, not because of us. They're all grace. But then God's people have a cycle where they receive this grace, and they're faithful for a bit, and then they become unfaithful. And when they're unfaithful, they suffer the consequences of their choices. For instance, in Isaiah's time, they're currently in exile because they made some treaties with some countries in order to save their skin instead of depending on God. So exile is a good word maybe to describe the experience of unfaithfulness. Grace then, which is God doing for us what we can't do for ourselves, works to renew and restore us. So grace comes we receive the grace, we become unfaithful, but grace meets us again. And grace is also in blue because the whole thing is grace. You can't get away from grace. As grace does its work then, we're reformed, we're restored. Grace gets down into the dirt of our sin. You can't experience grace without dealing with the reality of your sin. You can't experience grace by by, you know, cleaning yourself up and being like, God, ready to receive your grace now. It's like we receive grace in the muck and the mire and the dirt in our unfaithfulness. And grace restores us. Grace reforms us. The work of grace is formation work. When Israel gets back to the land, it's not just, oh, let's build a new shiny temple again. They're walking among ruins, and they have to deal with emotionally and psychologically and spiritually what it means to be in this land, in ruins, and to rebuild this thing again. The rebuilding process is meant to form them. Reforming is always an opportunity for renewing. But as we see in Israel's life and in our own lives, the cycle kicks back in again with unfaithfulness. But we see in this that unfaithfulness never, friends, never has the last word. Unfaithfulness never has the last word. God's faithfulness brought us into existence, and it's God's faithfulness that will sustain us to the very end. And it's God's faithfulness. It's God's faithfulness in the end, friends, that, that's going to determine eternity. It's not us. It's not us. Let's look at two smaller cycles that are part of this passage that give us real-life examples of the cycle of grace. Verse 6. All of, us who have be- all of us have become like one who is unclean, 
and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. The the cycles here described um, can be seen in the ideas of filthy rags and leaves. Let's deal with the filthy rags one first. One of the women in our interpretive community this past week gave some incredibly helpful insight to this idea of filthy rags. Those rags are menstrual rags used by women. And this important insight came from our sister. She described this as a lost opportunity for life. The rags, the bleeding, the regular part of a woman's biological system, she described as a lost opportunity for life. A child was not conceived. But that wasn't and isn't the end. The cycle of life God puts into place renews itself. And there's an opportunity for life again. We can think about the rags in another way, too, because we live in a very disposable society. They didn't. They had to be reused. And so even though those rags were made unclean on a regular basis, they needed to be washed and reused again and again. Lost opportunities for life would become new opportunities for life. A dirty rag would be made clean and ready for use again. It's a cycle of greats. And then there's the leaves that are kind of very apropos to our life situation right now and the time that we find ourselves in and the seasons. A shriveled leaf is a leaf that once was uh, alive, but it's now dead. Does that mean the, the, the tree stops producing leaves when they, they lost that leaf for the season? No. It will bud again after a season of dormancy and death. After that, buds will appear, and then flowers will burst forth, and then the leaves will be renewed again. The trees will be green. And the leaves that withered, and I think this is so beautiful, the leaves that withered that were swept away by sin will become fertilizer for the earth. They will act as nutrients. Because this is what God does, and this is how grace responds. Grace is how God meets us in every situation, ideal or not ideal. When you are good and you receive good, it's grace. When you blow it and suffer the consequences, there's grace. Grace takes the stuff of death and renews its potential to bring out life. Now, Leah, you can go to that other happy emoji kind of sign thing, right? No matter what, this or, you know, bleep, 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 bleep. It's all grace. Now, you might think, well, doesn't this just let us sin and do whatever we want because grace is just going to cover it up? Read Romans 5 and 6. No. It's a simple fact that this, God who formed us, who formed you, I want to look at all of us now. God who formed all of us, friends, He knows your dust. You know that line from the scripture? He knows your dust. Does it shock God that you screw up? Nope. Does it make him run away and hide because you're too ugly to look at? Nope. How does he meet you? Grace. 
grace. That is God's relationship towards you. That's God's posture towards you. It's one of grace. And so when you're blessed, friends, it's grace. Grace meets you. Don't get too excited when you're blessed. Don't get too excited when life is going well. Don't get too excited when the bank account's full. Don't get too excited when you're super successful at something. It's all grace. And when you blow it, don't get too excited about blowing it. Don't beat yourself up too much. You can't do anything about consequences because those things are there. But what's going to sustain you? Grace. How's God present with you in that time? Grace. God hasn't turned from you. That's God's way of relating to us. God's a way of taking care of us. It's grace. You're dust. I'm dust. God gets it. He created you. He created me. I don't think he has interest in, like, making sure that you... <laughs> it's... Oh, man, this is a great parenting analogy, right? When my kids mess up... Okay, one of my kids... Uh, sorry, kids... Um, one of my kids made a boo-boo back in the day, and I'll just leave it at boo-boo. And uh, so we sat down. Um, oh, what, what, what was the order of this? Um, they made a boo-boo, and they were, it was in the teenage years, so it wasn't like taking something from their sibling or something like that. It was a more significant boo-boo. And you know what I did, Ruby and I, to talk about it and process it? We took them out for wings. Because, and they said, tonight was not how I thought that was going to go. Because, <laughs> uh, and, and as parents, we do have this authority, right? We have this place. Kid, what the heck were you thinking? You're an idiot. And you, I, I mean, I'm saying... That tone is even just funny in and of itself. It would have been something worse. But you get the idea. Like, you can use your power to really drill it in because they might not get it. The consequences might not be enough. So <laughs> parents have a gift at, at illuminating the consequences and making sure that they understand, right? But is this how God operates with us? Does God continue to beat us down so we really, really know that we've messed up? I don't think so. I think the consequences of what we do do that enough. And I don't, I don't think God is punitive in that way. Do we suffer? Yeah, but we suffer because of what we've done, what we've decided to do. Where is God? God's kind of there to pick us. God's a friend of sinners. With us for us. That's who God is. So it's all grace. It's all grace. Verse 8, just to close, says, Yet, Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work 
of your hand. Grace is the way that the potter treats the clay. And grace is the way that God the Father treats God's children. Friends, God's not ticked at you. God's not mad at you. Is he mad at the injustices of the world? Yeah. Is he mad at evil? Is he mad at death? Yeah. But what's he want for you? He wants you to receive grace. Amen. I want to invite us into a time of prayer just quietly, and servers for communion, I'll invite you forward at this time so you can prepare. I just want to give us a few moments of silence to receive. Um, We believe that the Holy Spirit acts and relates to us as a person. And so maybe there's a word or an idea or a picture that comes from our conversation in the scriptures today. So let's just spend a moment of silence and be attentive to receiving that. Jesus, there are times when we feel guilt and shame about the things that we have done or the things that we have said or the things that we think. Sometimes that causes us to hide from you because we think that those things repel you from us. Sometimes, actually, I think, Lord, we want you to treat us as our sins deserve. But your scripture is clear, too, that you don't treat us as our sins deserve. That before we've done anything, Lord, you looked on us and you said we were very good. And you loved us. And you show that in the person of Jesus, God in the flesh, who takes on flesh for the sins of the whole world because you love the whole world. Lord, I pray that you would help us to put away the the ways of thinking in which you are somehow against our good and that you would allow us to receive grace. Grace like oxygen. That we would learn to live and survive by receiving your grace. Pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. So a few notes of instruction uh, for those of you who are new with us this morning. Uh, We have servers to our right and to our left. They will serve you uh, the elements. You may take them back to your seat uh, then. Uh, If you are not able to come forward for one reason or another, Ruby, one of our deacons, would be happy to serve you at your seat. Just wave her down as she's walking uh, walking by. 
Would you join me? Let's pray the Lord's Prayer together as we prepare to receive this morning. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Scriptures tell us that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and broke it and gave thanks. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember, Christ willingly broke himself and allowed himself to be broken for you. And after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant poured out in my blood for the forgiveness of your sins. This is how Christ meets you, friends. He breaks himself for you. He pours himself out for you. This is his disposition for you now and forever. We practice an open table here. And that simply means that those of you who desire to receive this grace and mercy of Jesus are welcome to come and receive. And so I would invite you this morning, let us come and receive this grace that God has for us. Amen. Would you come forward?